Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, editor of Prospect magazine. This week, we're talking to Danny Dawling about the end not just of a high growth economy, but also a high growth world. Now, Danny, as some of you will know, is Professor of Geography at Oxford and a prolific author who's known for wizardly charts and maps that show us quite how unfair the world is. His latest book, however, is more cheerful. Slow down the end of the great acceleration and what's good for the planet, the economy and our lives. He'd written it in a few months before the COVID uh, pandemic meant that the world had been literally forced not just to slow down, but to stop. But in a way, the crisis gives the thesis a new urgency. And uh, so in a minute, we'll hear from him directly about whether or not the lockdown could be a bridge into a more enduring and fundamental readjustment of our lives. But Steve, um, I'm becoming aware of this as a bit of a trick or a trope or whatever, that everything on planet Corona seems to have to be looked at through a COVID lens. Here's a very interesting book this chap's written back in November when no one had ever heard of the coronavirus and yet am I wrong to be looking at it through that prism? Uh, No Tom I think pretty much everything at the moment is obviously through a coronavirus lens Um, and in a way that's pretty understandable because this has completely churned up our world and while it may, you know, while there are many things that may stay the same uh, sort of once we end lockdown, there are many things that may change dramatically in a way that, um, you know, for most people alive now, there hasn't really been a, a moment quite like it. Um, it's quite interesting putting together the, the magazine um, which went to press last week and is arriving on subscribers' doorsteps uh, this week. There were obviously quite a few things that we commissioned recently, sort of, you know, post-coronavirus. But then there were also other things like um, Barbara Speed's essay on sleep and how we're not getting enough of it and how we struggle with the idea of whether we're not getting enough, which had nothing to do with coronavirus when it was commissioned. But obviously, by the time it came to her, uh, for her to write it and for us to edit it, it made a lot more sense to... Uh, to make it fit with the theme because, of course, you know, so many of us are struggling with sleep right now because of the stresses and strains of coronavirus. 
Yeah, that, I mean, that is exactly a parallel case to the Danny Dawling book, I guess. I mean, it's this big idea. It was already there, but then suddenly it's got this new kind of um, poignancy. But go on, just um, give any listeners uh, who might chance upon an open news agent, if they're especially lucky, or if not, might uh, log on and um, subscribe and get the magazine posted through their doorstep. What, what have we what have we got this time? Because um, everyone's doing coronavirus all the time. How can Prospect do it differently or make it, uh, make it more interesting? So we've got, I'd say, four or five pieces that are sort of you know, big, th- big essays that are coronavirus related in a sense. So uh, Stephen Brani has done a fantastic piece on uh, how Germany laid a path on testing and, and whether it's something that the UK can, can emulate. Um, but in terms of the big picture ideas, we've got a wonderful essay by Margaret Macmillan, the historian, uh, about the, the potential good things that can come out of a crisis, uh, looking back at you know, a whole range of different things through history uh, for, for lessons there. And also Danny Roderick, the economist, has written a great piece on uh, the future of globalisation and how uh, a new globalisation can be rebuilt post-COVID-19. Uh, Dan Hancock has also written a, a great piece about uh, supermarkets and how um, supermarkets became sort of the new uh, ministry of, for food, replacing the role that uh, the government had been doing for so long. Um, and, uh, and there's also lots of stuff that's got nothing to do with coronavirus as, as well, um, such as uh, Rebecca Liu's uh, fantastic interview with uh, Bernadine Evaristo, which is, uh, which is well worth your time. So yes, if you're not a subscriber, and you can't get to a news agent, never fear, because you do have online access if you're listening to this. Uh, so you can go to our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk. Uh, and of course, you can always become a subscriber there as well. How's that for a sell? Yeah, you did very well there, uh, Steve. Um, but I was um, particularly taken with the idea that we're talking about work and trade and business and all that Danny Roderick stuff. We're talking about history. We're talking about sleep and we're talking about how we eat with the supermarkets piece. So it does sort of cover the, <laughs> the spectrum of, of, of all the different dimensions of our life. And, um, and where we want to, we're always able to find this coronavirus lens. I mean, it is quite extraordinary. I've, I've never seen a story like that. You know, we spent the last two years saying, oh, Brexit is everywhere. It touches everything. It recasts everything. But it didn't sort of, I mean, ultimately it was quite boring and quite remote from most people's day-to-day lives compared to this one, wasn't it? It was, but then you know, but but Brexit didn't, yeah, Brexit didn't affect most people's day to day living, whereas this affects everyone's day to day living. Um, there, there is nothing about your normal life now that that isn't affected in in some way. So I think that's no surprise. I mean, yeah, the, the challenge is going to be from an editorial point of view is. You know, at what stage do people think actually they want something different? And you know, for example, with with this very podcast that you're listening to right now, we've had actually very little about coronavirus. We've been uh, mainly talking about uh, lots of other different things, fascinating things from around the world that um, that have nothing to do with it. And and obviously, in the magazine itself, there's the arts and books section, which uh, hasn't really touched on coronavirus. Uh, the life section has at times, hasn't at times as well. And I think. You know, we've got another issue which we're working on at the moment, the July issue, which might be quite corona heavy. But then we're into our August, September double summer issue, 
we're going to be thinking about you know who the great thinkers are of the world again. Uh, I think that'll be hopefully a moment. Hopefully, most lockdowns will be over by then for us to start thinking about what comes next. And I imagine sort of as we go on, there'll be uh, uh, less and less coronavirus content. Uh, you'd hope so, and we also hope, of course, there'll be less cases. But just tell us before we turn to our chat with. Um, Danny Dawling. I mean, we've all had this experience now of working remotely, of not having any kind of meetings in the office and uh, not certainly going on any flights and no Easter holidays. No, you know, like lots of things that would have happened haven't happened. Do you find that uh, for you, Steve, is an advertisement for an idea of a slower economy, slower lifestyle type of um, existence or do you find it a nightmare and think, my God, I'm dying to get back to business as usual? In other words, does this make you want to lap up Danny Dawling's um, book and his thesis? Or does it make you want to throw the book across the, the living room? Tom, I think as the father of a three-year-old, I wouldn't necessarily say that this is uh, an advertisement for anything positive. Um, the challenge of full-time childcare and full-time work has obviously uh, been a little bit tricky. Um, but... I imagine, and I'd be interested to hear what, what Danny says about this, but I think what's interesting is that there might be a case for a gentle evolution towards you know, what he calls the slowdown, the end of the great acceleration, and sort of a jarring, juddering halt on uh, normal life as was. And I think that there are... There are ways that you could sort of, you know, we saw this in the debate over the last year or so over, you know, whether you have a uh, four-day week and, what, you know, what sort of difference that makes um, to uh, to people's livelihoods that would be a, a lot more subtle than just um, everyone stay at home <laughs> and never go to an office again. I mean, what I find interesting about it is it just forces you into this different way of working, which could mean, even if it is a nightmare, like you do know what you're capable of doing now without going into an office. Um, I'll leave it to listeners' imaginations, the thought that um, whilst this was being recorded and unbeknownst to me in these um, new environment, there was a six-year-old with no clothes on bouncing up and down in the background to the horror of our producer, Rebecca. Um, and uh, yeah, here you are listening to it. Nothing can stop us now. And so uh, with that thought, maybe I should move across to uh, our chat with Danny Dawling and his ideas about slowdown. Danny Dawling, uh, welcome. Now, um, you've written um, this book called Slow Down. What is it exactly that's slowing down? It isn't just the economy, is it? It isn't just the economy. Uh, it is most importantly uh, demography worldwide, the number of children we're having. Now, this is an old story. This was already known. But that slowdown, it turns out, has actually been ex accelerating. Uh, in 2019, the UN released their latest uh, data for the world and it turns out we're having even fewer babies than we thought we were having and the fertility fall was fastest in, in the poorest countries and faster than we'd thought um, but it's also uh, the economy and GDP uh, and I step back and, and say we're constantly looking for excuses as to why GDP is falling we talk about the, the great economic crash or the unemployment of the 80s or the oil shock of the 70s but if you look decade on decade from the 50s to 60s 70s 
you can see that GDP growth simply was slowing each decade. Uh, I also claim, probably most rashly, or it's hardest to prove this, but that the rate of technological change is slowing, the amount of innovation is slowing. Uh, and that's mm. the opposite of what people often say. And I would suggest we live in a world where universities and businesses are kind of paid to claim they're constantly inventing new things. Uh, but if you look at the changes in our lives compared to changes in my parents' lives and my grandparents' lives, the amount of things which are truly new and transformatory are much, much less. And our children are growing up in a world which was more similar to our childhood than previous generations experienced. Uh, so let's just take the demography bit first, because that bit there's going to be no argument about, because you can count people. There's always arguments, isn't there, about counting GDP. Um, how surprising is this? There's some nice figures in the book. You talk about projections in early 1970s America, where someone says, if, if this keeps going by the year 2070 or something, we're going to have one American stood on every square foot of American land. I, I forget the numbers, but like it obviously had to stop at some point, or the number of people was going to as the book says, outweigh the world. Yeah, it, it did. There's a kind of catch-up between what happens in the world and our understanding of it. Uh, so 1968 was the peak year of human growth ever in the history of the species since we became a species. <laughs> yeah. And it's very, very recent. 2% growth a year in 1968, and that was when the Population Bomb book uh, was written. Now, there were a tiny number of people in 1968 who had worked out this has to be the peak of growth. But in general, there was panic um, about what was was happening. Um, and we still talk. We, we, you know, we live in a world where most people, if you were to ask them, would say we have a population growth problem. Mm-hmm. Most people do not understand that the majority of the reason the population of the planet is growing is that people like you and I are not dying. We're getting older. Um, you know, it's, it's not, a, not a bad reason. Um, all that... Women everywhere are choosing on average when they get any chance to have on average fewer than two children. Uh, No attempts by the most authoritarian regimes to try to get women to have more children appear to work anywhere, which is kind of great news. So what we began to recognise, I suppose a few people in the 60s, more in the 70s, more in the 80s, and, you know, that's a vogue, it's becoming more and more certain that in the lifetime of our children... Uh, the planet will pass a peak, will stabilise for human beings, and this will have the first time that numbers fall, not due uh, to infectious disease, which is what happened in 1492, not due to war and colonisation, which is what happened in the early 1800s, but out of choice. Um, And generally, I just think we we just don't celebrate the good news story of this, enough we think we're an out of control species but somehow we, we have managed to con- control ourselves um and we, and we learn from each other we learn so you can see one reason why fertility is falling so much faster in the poor world than we thought is that everywhere doesn't have to go through the transition that france and england and ireland went through so so in other words people can learn from um painful mistakes in the past that sounds good but um, you know, as someone who's very much on the left, you stand out here because traditionally it's been seen as a rather conservative thing to worry about overpopulation. And the left tradition has much more said more people means more brilliant new ideas and uh, reshaping of the world. And still now, amongst economists, we have people like Thomas Piketty um, saying, you know, that like 
population growth plus rapid technical change is the way to get higher wages and that what we end up with instead is a whole load of inequality because people are sort of scrapping over a fixed pie otherwise uh, yeah P piketty more you know over his worries about things he produced some of the most brilliant statistics showing that the carbon pollution of the rich is so much higher than the average and is higher than, than the poor so, so i suppose his comments about population are to do with the fact that um if you're worried about carbon in the planet total numbers of people are actually relatively unimportant um mm. it, it is the behavior of a few of us those of us <laughs> those of us who suddenly find that all those flights we were supposed to be on that we pretended we didn't take um you know we were the polluters um but you could make a mute point of whether the planet could happily populate with 15 billion or 20 billion people and you could come up with nice socialist ways in which we could do that but we don't have to do that. We don't have to worry about that. We, you know, we are stopping at 9, 10 or 11 billion. So we, we, right. can, we can kind of forget about how do we squeeze a ridiculous number of us on. We can stop worrying about food because we already produce enough food for that number. Uh, there's much other things we have to worry about, but at least let's celebrate a good news story when, when we get one. Sorry to be re relentlessly gloomy. I get the bit, I guess, about fewer people, even if it normally comes from a different tradition, there's few, fewer people you strain on resources and so, so so things are more sustainable but what about your other point your more controversial point about the rate of um invention and so on slowing down so that technical progress is slowing down surely that was why it was that wages of ordinary people were going up in the 40s 50s 60s um and people worry that they're not going up now um it, it depends it depends how you count wages um you know if you count wages in terms of shelter how much housing does this wage buy you then then the increases are not so dramatic um we it is great that we had technological progress um it is brilliant that we can control the heating of the rooms we're in so that we're comfortable but the idea that you're going to have another kind of technological progress in future where we do something with our rooms to make them even more comfortable, it's kind of silly. We've, we've gone over a hump of working out what can we do with electricity? Um, what can we do with a computer having invented it quite a long time ago? Uh, what do we do with these mobile phones, which I actually had one of these things as a teenager. Um, you know, was, yeah, I'm a weird, slightly geeky um, person. I had the internet. You mean a walkie-talkie? <laughs> a big, chunky mobile phone. Oh, right, um, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the, the idea that we need new aeroplanes um, that go faster to make us better off in the world, um, that kind of thing I just think is silly. The 747 was invented in 1968, first flew in 1968. Um, much of what we think of as new is not that new. Whereas, if you go back a bit further, the tractor, which I think was around, around about 1908, you know, that was revolutionary. There were horses everywhere. <laughs> um, and this is only, this is my great-grandparents' time and the childhood of my grandparents. Uh, so it's accepting that we have settled down in the rich world to a world of a washing machine and a tumble dryer but not another box, uh, and to a world in which we are used to being able to talk like this, like we're talking over a screen, but we don't expect to be able to tell you, to, to, to um, 
you know, physically move from one room for another in a way that they could do in Star Trek in the 1970s. So, 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 so the kind of extra gain from those sort of things you think might be quite small if we start like having the robot like be able yeah. to carry the telly around the house for a sort the of extra thing. gain you can just see it dropping. If you think of telegraph and telephone, the shock of being able to phone somebody else was absolutely enormous. Uh, the shock of being able to see a face is is, is much less. The latest mobile phone innovation last year, the, the, one of those huge um, kind of uh, conferences that they have to unveil these things, was a mobile phone that you could bend. Now, you know, we've really run out of new ideas. If if a bendy phone is seen as a great move forward. Um, <laughs> OK, so you're being you, you're being suitably rude about the latest kind of consumer gimmicks but when you think about the tractor the point about the tractor was that it was freeing up people's time wasn't it because you could not just as a peasant be you know spending hours and hours of backbreaking work on plowing a field the tractor would do it for you and you'd be able to do something else instead and isn't that also true with all kinds of technology you know we're not having to travel now because of this technology um, in order to have this conversation that not so long ago we would have had to have done, and equivalent things for like dull routine bits of law that can be done by computers. And well, yeah, 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 yeah. there's a kind of fad to say this. That, well, there was a fad last year of, of saying everything will be automated again, and, and an AI fad. Uh, I mean, on law, the real question we should be asking ourselves is why do we have so many lawyers in Britain compared to so much fewer on the continent, and why does the US have you know? Um, have so so much automation is brilliant i i i grew up in this town of oxford at the time i grew up uh the most common job for a boy was to go and work in the car factory Forty thousand men worked in the car factory here now the cars are made even more cars than then by 1200 beautiful silent robots and you don't have to go and work on the production line it's freed up time. The problem is that we've we've taken that freed up time and haven't necessarily used it in a particularly sensible way. So a huge number of us are now involved in trying to sell other people things they do not want. A much higher proportion than in the past are involved in advertising. One in ten normally work in retail. Those people, if you go into a clothes shop, which I must admit I don't much in my age, but when you used to go into a clothes shop and somebody would come up and say, can I help you with that? That kind of a job. You know, an unnecessary, unrewarding job to try to get you to buy more. Uh, so progress, I, I would argue, in the future is all about trying to work out how do we get that leisure time that we should have? How do we slow down? How do we work out that we don't need to make more money so that we can fly abroad for a few weeks in the sun? Because it doesn't make us that much happier. And that's quite hard to do because we've been used to accelerating. We're used to the idea that Getting more, making more money will make you happier. And getting out of that is is quite hard to do uh, in general. Even Gordon Brown, as Prime Minister, believed that 2% GDP growth a year was absolutely essential. Um, now, that 2% growth a year, if it had been achieved, and it sounds very small, would have helped widen the international gaps in wealth that he was worried about. <laughs> Which kind of gives you, gives you an example of how hard it was for people to think a few years ago of the idea that we will slow down, settle down. There comes a point where you do not need to grow, at least materially, in the, in the amount of physical things you're consuming. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's just look back at how this has happened in the past. We've run in Prospect before stuff by Robert Gordon, who popularised this theory that you'd have these different industrial revolutions, and now we were out of them. Um, and uh, like the, the, the era you refer to, the Edison era, where you suddenly invent the gramophone and the telephone and all these kind of things at once, the electric light, and it, it makes a big difference, whereas other stuff... He's a bit of a gimmick and doesn't matter so much. But he's always run into criticism from other people who say, well, actually, it's just that our imagination kind of has a frontier and we can't go beyond that. So that if you try to talk to someone in 1950 about what an iPhone was, it's not that they wouldn't think it was possible to make it. It's just that they wouldn't have known yes. what you were talking about. Yeah, uh, it's a good point, And I think it's right. But it may be. And this is, of course, the, I can't argue this because... It's hard to talk about things that you can't imagine by definition. Um, but I expect the, the big differences in the future not to be technological, but to be social. Uh, so imagine going back to 1950 and talking to people on average and saying, it'll be okay to be gay in the future. Or saying, we will, young women will be graduating from university at a much higher rate than young men. Like, people would find that absolutely impossible. And I, I think that the most likely changes that we're going to get in future are going to be social and cultural. And there'll be things that you and I do now, which we think are perfectly fair and reasonable, that our grandchildren, if we're lucky enough to have them, our grandchildren will say, you won't believe what our grandparents, you know, those bigots did. Um, and so I end the book talking about Japan and the social changes in Japan and the first member of the royal family who's not from the aristocracy, which may sound like an odd thing to end with, but it's trying to say Japan is a society which in many ways appears to have stopped changing, Tokyo has stopped growing, um, is actually changing more rapidly culturally now than it has before. So, so you still get change, uh, or you'd hope you still get change, uh, but a, a, a change that will be quite different and one that almost by definition we can't imagine. I mean, the other thing well worth saying is you, you always have great fears. You know, the great fear of my teenage year was nuclear war. It actually was quite likely. It looked likely to happen. The thing I never worried about as a teenager was climate change, because to get my geography A-level, I had to write down 
how fast the world was cooling. Um, we were actually, we, we were taught about global cooling um, when I was 17 or 18. And there will be something now which will be a great problem in 50 years' time, which you and I have no idea idea about. But we can at least, we've got to a point now of, it's almost trite to say it, but we should celebrate the fact at least we've got an idea that we know we're not going to have solved it all. Can I just go back, though, to this question of distribution that's nagging at me? Because you're concerned, a lot of your books have been about how unfairly shared things have been, and this this one's quite different. But if you look at, say, Japan... In those 25 years, is it now? Maybe even 30 years since they stopped growing very rapidly and kind of cooled right down. Um, Does that tend to mean that it's been easier to manage the conflict about who gets what? Or has it got harder because you can't just distribute goodies as they come in the door like Gordon Brown had to? You have to redistribute and take something off someone. I would argue it's easier. When you think there's growth coming, when you think there's growth ahead then the argument, don't worry about your position now, your children will be much better off, just, you know, don't worry your pretty little head, leave it to me, the wealth creators will create a wonderful future for you. You can get away with that argument when people can see that house prices rise and rise and salaries go up and so on. Once you begin to get stability, you know, not just one lost decade, as it was supposed to be called, but two and three, making an argument that put up with inequality now, the future will be okay, doesn't work anymore. Uh, so Japan has managed, Japan was pretty equal and has managed to maintain those levels of pretty high uh, quality. It's always disputed because there are two surveys that come out of Japan. It's it's the unequal countries of the world, of the rich world, and, and the UK is one, where growth has always been put forward as the solution to what you might complain about over your current way of, of living. Mm. And the slowdown makes that harder. Uh, so where I see places slowing down the most, you know, take somewhere like Finland, which has very low fertility rates and, and so on, and a very high portion of pensioners. Um, one way in which it, it's not just that the Finns are good at equality. When you are slowing down, you really have to give people greater equality because they, they will notice <laughs> that um, if they don't have it, then what they complain about will carry on for the next generation. Um, so I may be optimistic about this, but okay. Well, that, that that's that, that's um, a, a cheery point of view, which is good to have, particularly now at this uh, rather grim moment. We've got nearly twenty minutes into this without mentioning uh, the C word, be it coronavirus or COVID nineteen. But let's just bring that in. Um, this is a very substantial book, four hundred pages, endless data, endless charts, and of course, you've done all of this um, before the substance of this, anyway, before you knew about the coronavirus, um, what role do you see it as having? It's certainly speeding up the slowdown, if I can put it like that, for yeah, the moment. Yeah. I, I'm quite glad. I mean, this was put to bed in January. Uh, without, and there's not one mention of coronavirus in the text whatsoever. Uh, I do have a slight obsession with pandemics and epidemics. So there are quite a few pandemics and epidemics in there, of which the, the key one was 1918, 14% drop in global GDP, but the next year, 16% rise. So, so the message of the book was, in general, unless you go back to the Black Death and the Plague, in general, pandemics, 1918, 51, 57, 68, tend to be blips uh, in these things. But those were all ones that happened during a period of acceleration. We were chuntering forward so fast, and of course in 1918 there was so much more going on, the whole of Eastern Europe was in turmoil and revolution, um, that 
this could happen. Whereas this very small pandemic, it has to be said, you've got to be very careful about how you put it, but this small pandemic, certainly compared to something like AIDS, um, has this incredible effect. And, and I partly ask the question, is it because we were already in a very nervous state, entering a kind of global economic recession, trade wars between China and America, um, that we've had this particular reaction to it. But as it is, it accelerates the slowdown. I suppose it Uh, might be because we've got rich enough as a society to decide it's worth making really quite big sacrifices compared to, uh, you know, to protect some lives compared to what people were able to do in... Yeah. 1918. But as a result of that, do you think the economic consequences will be completely different? I don't know. I, I really try to, I'm being honest about this, because um, it can, the sensible thing to say, given hindsight, would, would be to say, you'll be shocked how quickly we come out of this, uh, particularly given how rapidly the numbers of deaths are currently falling. Between you and I, and everybody listening, at the moment, on the 1st of May, when we're recording this, this looks very like a standard five, six week up, five, six weeks down pandemic. Um, and so the sensible thing to say would be, it'll be like other ones. In two years time from now, we, you and I, will talk about this and the fact we lived through it. Um, but the planes will be flying again, slightly less of them. Uh, people will be more nervous. They'll be talking about COVID-20. Um, hopefully we'll prepare properly for a really bad pandemic. However, another part of me thinks, actually, this has come at a time when Greta, that teenager from Sweden, was getting headlines around the world. People were nervous about the direction of travel in which we were going. We were acutely aware of inequalities. Uh, We've watched the billionaires lose a third of their wealth. It may come back. And of course, we know some of them have become rich, but the stocks and shares have absolutely plummeted. The pension funds of well-off people have been decimated more than once. Uh, house prices and values, we have no idea where they are, but um, the poor have suffered most in the short term, but we've had a levelling down of wealth inequality that we've never seen before. Will sentiment return? Will anybody ever spend £2 million again on the house with three bedrooms not quite in the centre of London? <laughs> um, uh, so the optimist in me wants this to be a sea change. Uh, but and, with little evidence for that. So we don't know where we are. As you say, we're kind of in suspended animation. And yet, like some of the particular things, not the demography, but the kind of the the social psychology, if you like, that you're kind of calling for as a, as a flip here, like, you know, get, get used to it. You don't need so much kind of um, conspicuous consumption. Um, and uh, life could be quite good without it if, if, if we uh, made room for it. But like lockdown is surely a kind of good trial run for that. It is, and especially for the commentariat like you and I. You know, we live odd lives. Our lives have been particularly affected. I was due to give 30 public lectures on this book, and um, obviously not. But the world doesn't come to an end because you can't stand in front of an audience and talk. Uh, and, but for somebody like me who was quite addicted to a travelling around, look at me, narcissistic kind of life, Mm. uh, I had to be forced, literally physically forced, not to go to London. In fact, I was going to go to London, and a loved one just said, Danny, don't, for for some BBC thing, because I thought it was so terribly, terribly important that I do that on that day. So for us, 
and I'm talking about is this tiny section of society that gets to do podcasts and so on. It's a hell of a shock, and it might do us quite a lot of good. I, I'm, I'm acutely aware I'm a man in his 50s, uh, and if you were younger, uh, or not a man, you know, this you might be saying, this is absolutely terrible, this was my chance to do things, and it's been taken away from me. But I, I do think the kind of navel-gazing and contemplating uh, that will go on amongst uh, people who have a much louder voice than average uh, hopefully will, will help. And if we realise that we don't need as many restaurants, as many trips around the festival circuit or whatever it is, yes. um, and there'll be equivalent things for kind of jet setters in business, I'm sure, you know, as much club class and, and, and so on. Yeah. Um, like, do you think then we could get to the kind of slowdown end point <laughs> really quite quickly? I love this idea of accelerated slowdown. We, we, could, do th- we could do it faster. Um, you know, there's a chance of something fortuitous coming out of this. I was due, and it seems ridiculous now, a few weeks ago, I was due to be flown to the US to talk in a room with 50 people and then fly back again. Uh, what a ridiculous thing to do. It would you know, be quite nice. I was going to have to pay any money for this. Um, if I'd gone, I'd be trapped there now. <laughs> you know, and it, it helps you think why, particularly for lefties who say they're environmental, like me, what on earth were we playing at? In, in quite a lot of our, our lives and what we did. You know, when you could eat out that often, that eating out stopped being a pleasure and was just sort of something you did so you could have a conversation with somebody and not waste time. You know, do you remember that, that idea of, um, I'll have a meeting over lunch or meeting at dinner and then I won't waste time because I can work even harder. <laughs> like, whereas now, the idea of being allowed out once to a restaurant in two weeks, wouldn't that be nice? You'd, you'd savour it, take your time over it. A pint of beer in a pub garden suddenly changes in terms of what it what it means instead of that kind of snatched pint on a friday at six o'clock when you know you really should go home but you have no time um i'm i'm an eternal optimist um and this is a it's not a huge it feels huge event to us it's of course it's a tiny thing compared to say both world wars and things that previous generations have lived through Uh, which did have effects on them. Um, But it may not be both from the point of view of preparing for a worse pandemic to come and from making a step back and look at our lives. I think you can say that we shouldn't despair entirely that this came now. And also in hindsight, we've been so lucky. There have been so many decades when we haven't had, you know, even a normal bad flu pandemic. Yeah. Um, I think we should count our blessings partly even even in the midst of the crisis. And the fact, you know, the hospitals are half empty. Um, and the fact that Nightingale's hospitals only took 50 people. And the fact that only 25, less than 25 people under age 25 have died in the UK. Mm. Um, we've closed all the university campuses. And so far, we don't know and can't find out if a single student has died anywhere in Britain. I mean, it's really fortunate that the young are not affected, but... Um, yeah, we're living, we're living through discovering the history that will be written of this thing. Danny Dawling, thank you very much for helping us to count our blessings. OK, that's all for this week. Thanks for joining us uh, once again for the Prospect interview. If you enjoyed it, please do leave us a rating or a review. Rebecca Lou is our producer. Goodbye, stay safe and we'll see you next week.